Hello, welcome to the Curator Podcast. This is episode 18. Hi, hello, welcome once again, dear listener, to the Curator Podcast. I am your host, Mark Fraser, and this is episode number 18. 18, man. It's a lot of episodes. Been doing this for a while now. It's kind of weird. I'm enjoying it, though. I hope you're enjoying it, too. If you're not enjoying it, please send me some hate mail. That'd be awesome. Or feedback. Feedback's also cool. I'm into that, too. I'm also really grateful for having the chance to talk to so many awesome people and this episode is no exception. But before we get into that, I want to say thanks for all the emails and comments and messages. I still don't really know what I'm doing, still just winging it. But you know, I've been able to sit down and talk to some cool people and I'm super fortunate that, that you're listening, so thanks. One thing I want to say though is that if you listen to any of these podcasts and maybe you disagree with something someone says in one of them, get involved, man. People seem to be responsive to what the guests are saying and I often just let people talk for as long as possible because I'm also the audience, you know. I'm asking questions so that you guys can hear passionate people talk about the things that they love. And this episode is really no exception to that. On this episode, I have acclaimed author and playwright Alan Bissett. He's been responsible for some great books such as Boy Racers, The Death of a Ladies' Man and Pac-Man, as well as numerous plays like The Moira Monologues, The Red Hourglass, Ban This Filth and various others. He's also got a tendency to act in his own work, so I guess I should probably add actor to that list as well. I've long been fascinated by Alan's novels. They've got a certain verve and energy, particularly in the way that he deploys the vernacular and composes strong, consistent, well-rounded characters that I've found is quite common to many Scottish writers. Only his work is invested with a stunning sense of originality, his powerful deconstruction of masculinity and relentless probing of male psychology is every bit as unflinching as it is funny. And above all, his writing is just continually surprising. It was a real treat to sit down and chat with him. He's the second writer that I've spoken to and it just brought me right back to how I felt when I was in uni where I was buzzing with questions about literature in a way that I'd rarely seem to feel whenever I come to talk about music. Talking to an author is a much is a much different experience than talking to a musician and I think that's because of the nature of the art itself. Musicians get to see people receive and react to their art in a multitude of ways, on a continual basis, often in real time. They know that people care about their art and appreciate their message. Of course, writers get the same thing, but it's just a bit more ethereal. Book reviews and online discussions of their work often ebb and flow as time passes. If you're really lucky, you'll get your work discussed in academia, but then again, if you're the writer, you're very rarely party to that. It just happens without your knowledge a lot of the time. 
which is great, but also writers, like most artists, they just want to know that people are seeing their art, that they're absorbing it, that they're thinking about it in a way that they hoped someone would, and the way that they do about other artists, about other novelists, about other writers. Having the chance to actually sit down and chat with someone about their work. Having the chance to actually sit down and chat with someone about their work is really amazing. But with a writer, there's a totally different energy. Okay, so this interview then. It took place in the Yes Bar in Glasgow, which is very apt given how politically aware and engaged Alan is. So I have to apologise for some of the background noise. So I'm going to open with a track of his choosing. This song is called The Next Life and it's by Suede. Alan Bissett, 
a lot easier to get a hold of than you, Morrison. <laughs> How you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Aye, thanks for having a chat. Yeah. It's all about the chat. The, the chat, this podcast is about creativity and passion. So it's getting underneath the skin of the creative folk like yourself. Okay. Uh, so I guess I'll start with this question. Um, when did you first... When you first become aware of that creative drive that you have as an artist, writer, playwright? Uh, fairly early, I would say. I was always quite an imaginative child. Uh, I was drawn a lot. Uh, I was writing stories. I was doing wee comic books and putting my brother and my pals and all that in them. And sometimes they're superheroes and sometimes they're solving a crime or whatever. So it just felt like the most natural thing in the world. It was this thing that I did um, even when I wasn't being told to do it. And I think we kids that really shows you what their passions are. It's like left to their own devices, what did they decide to do? And um, that was obviously the thing that I was going to try and magnify over time into a a career. At what point did you realise that you were going to do it for a career? Um, Well, obviously there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, There still is. (laughs) But I think it was probably in my early 20s, I was doing a PhD at Stirling University, and I was really bored, you know, it was just, I was getting lost in all this academic jargon and theory and uh, it, it just felt a bit turgid and constipated. And so I started writing again um, and the stuff that I was writing felt quite free and, and liberated. Um, so I went along to a writing group in Stirling, headed by a poet called Maggie Gibson and she really kind of hothoused me over about maybe a couple of years. I started getting really good and uh, I think it was when I was shortlisted for the Macallan competition which was the short story competition at the time in Scotland like Michelle Faber had won it and Anne Donovan had won it and Chris Dolan, Ali Smith you know like serious writers and uh, I was shortlisted for that one year and suddenly it was like oh this is this is actually a thing now this is possible, this is happening it's not just a pipe dream so probably then So if we go back just a tiny little bit um, did you come from a household where like books and theatre and stuff like that were, were commonplace a part of the cultural background or like did that just sort of come out of nowhere like where did that where did, although kids are want to write want to do art want to be creative where did the actual moment come from that you said you thought to yourself I'm going to write like was was that in your, your household no it wasn't it wasn't there uh, my mum and dad aren't particularly creative people um, they you know they, it was a TV household you know, we watched soaps and quiz shows and murder mysteries, the same as everybody else. Um, and they did have books, but not very many. And it tended to be things like, my dad had books about uh, the Glasgow Razor Gangs and my mum had read Mills and Boone, um, that kind of stuff. Uh, but nothing you know, nothing that they were trying to... Um, uh, nothing that they were trying to get me into. So it just felt like... My mum claims... It was because books were cheaper than toys and would keep me occupied for longer and make me quieter for longer. So that's what she did. And I just took to books and she didn't discourage it. So I don't know where it comes from. I think there are certain strains in families, creative strains, and and I think of it some of my ancestors, you know, my mum's grandfather, who I never met, he died when uh, my mum was quite young, but he used to make up songs. He used to write songs and sing them uh, at parties and all that, sitting around the the fire, because they lived in a mining village. So stuff like that, I suppose, is maybe somewhere there. That's been passed on somehow. Fuck, that sounded like ye olde Charles Dickens times. <laughs> Sorry, I, I, could, I could feel the hair growing on my chin there. It's fine. Keep talking about it, it's fine. <laughs> uh, OK, so 
I did Scottish literature at uni, as we kind of talked about a minute ago. Um, one thing I've noticed in your writing, and it's probably quite common in Scottish writing generally, is themes of identity and community. Um, are you aware of that when you write, or is it just... I, like, I'm always curious if writers are really aware of the themes that they work on, or that just the stories just somehow calcify in their head, and it just so happens that they all seem to be roughly about the same sort of ideas for most part anyway does that seem fair well I mean you start to realise these things about your own writing once people point them out to you so you have conversations like this and people tell you what your book's about Um, and some of that response is really interesting but you're not really conscious of it when you're doing it I think maybe what happens is certain mental patterns re-emerge because obviously you have a particular individual unique interior landscape and certain themes predominate there you know, things that maybe happened to you when you were younger, you know, big influences that you've had, um, certain types of drama that just seem to resonate more. Um, so I think maybe that's what it is. It's, if you look at any particular artist, whether it's a filmmaker or a writer or a band, over time they come back to similar motifs and themes uh, in, the, in their work, and I think that's an unconscious thing. If it started to become a conscious thing, then it wouldn't feel the way that it feels. It would feel, it would feel like an essay. I reread Boy Racer over uh, Boy Racers over the weekend, um, and I enjoyed it immensely again. Um, so I was just thinking about it in relation to Pac-Man, uh, obviously because they're the same characters, but also the struggles of identity and the fear of community are quite apparent in Boy Racers, whereas they seem to be reversed in Pac-Man. Um, and those two things, like we just said, are quite common in Scottish literature, just most generally. So. Do you think there's anything in particular in, in the Scottish writing tradition that makes Scottish writers want to analyse community and identity? Well, I think it's the case that a lot of the Scottish writers that have really resonated through the years have been from very humble origins. You know, uh, people like Burns right up to the present day, the sort of people we were talking about earlier, you know, uh, Irvin Welsh and uh, James Kelman, I suppose you could say, people like that. You know, they haven't come from the, the landed gentry they're still very much in touch with the communities that they came from and I think there's a very strong oral tradition in uh, Scotland and Scottish poetry as well a a certain kind of folk tradition um, or proletarian tradition that that sort of carries over into the the literature Um, and sort of in in a way sets itself against certain other types of metropolitan writing that are coming from big imperial centres like London is the most obvious example. But, you know, that doesn't encompass every Scottish writer. But certainly that would feel like the, the sort of tradition that I would instinctively want to belong to. Um, and so inevitably you're writing about community because you're writing about people. And you're writing about people without means. And uh, that is, uh, for me, much more powerful and valuable than writing a story, yet another story about rich people uh, having drawing room affairs you know it's like do we have to yeah that's a that's a good point I guess um, so what in particular files your analysis of, of community and your writing well I mean I think a lot of uh, a lot of people in my generation the the object was to get out of your community and I did that through education and I suppose you could say through through the arts you know um I no longer live in the community that I came from, uh, but I still feel in touch with it. And I think what happens is there's a sense of guilt and a sense of loss if you go away and, and you know, in commas, make something of your life. 
that you feel like you've kind of betrayed the culture that you came from and, and, and I know a lot of people who feel like that so I think what, the, what happens with the writing is you try and recover that you know you use the writing to, to fill that hole and make sense of it and make amends almost um, but yeah I, th- I, th- I think the, um, the whole narrative of you know, working class kid makes good has always been with us I think it's just getting harder for those kids to make good um, I mean, Boy Racers doesn't feel like the sort of book that would have been quite as possible these days. Why, why do you think that is, that it's getting harder? Well, I think because uh, the generation below me have got it harder than, than we did, and the generation before us and the generation before that. You know, it's the first generation where living standards are actually starting to go down. You know, what have you got if you're leaving school now with no qualifications or few qualifications? What's out there for you? Um, and as a society, we used to care about that. And we used to make sure there was employment there for people like that. But no, it's like we've just everybody's just pulled the ladder up and went, oh, sorry, you're on your own. So there's been a huge cultural and economic change that means that, that the same kind of hope uh, that Boy Racers had that would, I don't think, it'd quite be able to get away with that now. Do you think there's anything that, like any kind of current writing which that you're aware of that echoes that sentiment and I bring this up because of um, the Axe Discovery thing you're doing or you just the Axe Discovery thing that you just did with the writers yeah uh-huh. uh, well the sort of thing you were doing with uh, sort of young writers where was that? in Falkirk Discovery yeah. oh, I did a thing in Falkirk recently where I was doing some uh, drama courses yeah. uh-huh. is that it? yeah 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 okay yeah. sure how did you know about that? because I did my research Oh, right, wow, okay. <laughs> That's uh, very particular, good stuff. Um, so I'm, I'm asking, well, I haven't done that. Do you see that, now that the ladder's been pulled away, as you say, did you see any of that reflected, reflected in the writing or the drama you were coming across there? Yes, I do, actually. I mean, I haven't quite been as active in the field of the novel as I was because Pac-Man came out in 2011 and, you know, here we are in 2015 because for that time I've been doing plays so a, a, a wee bit more of the temperature of what's happening in theatre and there is a generation um, of young theatre makers you know, Steph Smith, Catherine uh, Evans, Kieran Hurley, Gary McNair Rob Drummond, Nick Green, um, Julia Todovan who are, are doing explicitly political work and that's a change because, I mean, I only entered theatre Christ 2009 or something like that I'm relatively new and even I can feel that change over the course of that. The, the sort of radical spirit that you got in like the 1970s with John McGrath and uh, Wildcat and 784, that kind of theatre, achieving the stagnant black, black oil, that feels like it's coming back. Um, and I think with uh, prose fiction, um, well, you know, you can look at a writer like Jenny Fagan. Uh, her book is, is political, The Panopticon. Uh, but I think it's harder. I think it's harder for novelists, Scottish novelists, because you're essentially trying to compete in a, a global marketplace, which you don't have to do about the theatre. With theatre, essentially, it's a local marketplace. And all right, everybody's got their big, massive blockbuster productions that come in and, you know, cats or whatever, but, you know, nobody's expecting to reasonably compete with them. But you can still get your stuff seen. It's much harder with novelists, I think. Never considered that before, that the tides of, like, the tides of like, creative dis- sort of... I guess, dissent is moving away from the novel towards the theatre. Um, 
that definitely seems like something that I've noticed in the past five years, even just by being at Glasgow Uni, do you know what I mean? Like, seeing that happen. Uh, and I don't know much about theatre personally, so maybe it's sort of time I started to look into that, because I haven't really read that many political novels from Scottish writers compared to the amount of political stuff that's been happening elsewhere, either in music or theatre. Uh, and you've been quite active in politics yourself as of late. Uh, it. <laughs> uh, yes, aye. I mean, there's still a lot of political writing getting done by prose writers. It's just not getting through. That's the difference. I've read various novels over the last five years where I've thought, well, you know, I can see what that's about. You've got Alison Miller's demo. You've got a book called uh, Sightworks by Robert Davidson, which I read a few years ago. I thought it was terrific. And nobody found it. And you're like, had these books come out maybe 1996? they'd have been massive because the Scottish cultural moment that was happening then in, in prose fiction was extraordinary but these things are cyclical and they're subject to fashion so because London and to a certain extent New York as well had decided that Scottish literature was in then then it was in but what I think nobody realised at the time and certainly I didn't was that it would be discarded again because it's no longer fashionable. It's like, we've done that. We've done the Scots. So if you are sort of following on from that 5, 10, 15 years later, and they're a bit like, all right, okay, yeah, Irvin Welsh, Trainspot, and we've got that. And it's like, okay, right, so one writer is now supposed to represent the entire Scottish working-class experience. You know, it's inconceivable if you think about that applied to middle-class writers. You wouldn't say, oh, well, Martin Amos has written a book about the English middle class, so we've done that. Exactly. You know, so you realise there's all sorts of structures in play and sort of cultural codes that determine whether or not um, you'll be given a hearing. I read Boy Racers around about the same time I read How Late It Was, How Late. And just going on about what you said there about like train spotting or particularly Irvin Welsh or that Scottish cultural moment, it actually blew my mind when I read both of those books. There's, there's, hang on, there's, there's people out there representing a sort of view of Scottish working class which... It's closer to my own than Irvin Welsh's was, and I hadn't heard about it until, until now. Like, what the fuck is going on here? You know? And what book is that? Both, like, like Boy Races and How Late It Was, How Late. Oh, right, right. Because, like, I hadn't seen anything. You could relate to How Late It Was, How Late? Oh, well, I could relate to the types of characters that were in it that right, I had okay. that come across in my right. community growing up. No, <laughs> I'm not blind. <laughs> a particular situation in that particular book. Yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, you look at that novel, that's kind of prophetic. I mean, oh God, I say prophetic, like it didn't have any relevance to the culture that it came from at the time. Of course it did. That was a political reality of a lot of people's situation in Glasgow in the 90s. But now, when you see the ways in which the, uh, the Department of Work and Pensions is trying to punish disabled people uh, and punish people essentially for being unemployed, then that book feels like uh, sort of <laughs> that's just a basic description of reality. You know what I mean? That's, that's now what we accept as the political norm, but Kelman is still considered this radical, you know, this outlier, because he's writing about the ways in which simply a lot of people exist. And that's still the way that we think about Kelman. Oh, he's out there, he's, you know, he's raging against the mainstream. Well, and to a certain extent, that's true. It's like, but why is he not the mainstream? He's describing things as they are. You know what I mean? That shouldn't feel radical. Do you think there's, a, do you think there's like, a real disconnect then between what people are reading in the mainstream and their desire to want to experience real things like I don't know literature has always been about escapism and commentary like equal parts people like what people like etc but there's an even more an even bigger sort of move towards fantasy 
are fantastic things in yeah. mainstream literature. Well, conversely, the political climate is probably more active than it has been for a very long time. Yeah. Why do you think that? Do you think there's a reason for that? That's a very good question. Well, let's see. I mean, well, if you think about most people's cultural diet now, it's essentially determined by American corporate interests. American culture, films, TV, books, what have you, is now more dominant across the planet than it's ever been, which is really saying something, because America has such economic dominance over the planet. So as an empire, what it does is not only... Uh, creates economic colonies all over the place, but cultural colonies. So, you know, if you're beaming American culture into the, the home of somebody living in Glasgow, it's almost inevitably going to seem more glamorous and uh, and shinier than the, the culture that surrounds them every day. So that's how you get people in. It's like selling them uh, Coke. You know, it's, it's, it's like selling them Doritos. It's the same process. Which isn't to say that sometimes there can't be good writing, but if you take something like Game of Thrones, right, which I, which I love and I think is great, or you take something like the Marvel series, you know, these colossal franchises now that are just dominating uh, cinema and TV, they're all sort of, well, first of all, they either reflect American interests or they are uh, universal stories such as you find in fantasy and in superheroes because those aren't culturally specific. And okay, you can see that Game of Thrones is kind of based in medieval Britain to a certain extent, but it's a fantasy story. It's about kings and queens, the sort of stuff that people can understand anywhere. What that means is that the particular local flavours and accents and languages and dialects and, and, and folk tales of individual cultures around the world start to become erased, and people neglect them and don't pay attention to them. And that's where the folk memory resides. That's how a, a people hand down their memory from one generation to the next. And if we're all entranced by the pretty lights emanating from America, we forget it. And we just slip into this um, American cultural trance essentially. I do agree with that. Um, one of the things that I, I got flack for saying in a seminar in Scottish Literature was I think because of the oral tradition and, and, and the way the way that we have to preserve these stories, I think a certain amount of cultural protectionism should take place, and people were like, "Well, no, you can't, you can't do that." Like, well, I think when things are getting homogenised and blown away by globalisation culturally, it's probably time that we start taking back a little bit and going, "No, keep, we're keeping this bit. We should keep this bit because this bit is important to who we are as people. We're yeah, not yeah. just, we're not just Tony Stark. You know what I mean? We're not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're not." Somebody for Game of Thrones. I don't watch it, so I can't. Well, quite. I mean, it's, it's a very interesting debate because. Those sorts of arguments used to come from the right. You know, there's a certain culture that we have to preserve against the, the onward march of change. And you can see that a lot of youth culture, for example, has broken through by posing as something that fights against that. You know, this is the new radical thing. However, we do lose something. And what we do lose is the thing that, you know, seems old and a bit creaky and from generations past. Because you can't make that new and shiny. And I think you're right. I think once we start to lose that, we really start to just fall into corporate colonisation. So it's not about protecting a culture and make, making sure it doesn't cross-fertilise or interbreed with other cultures because, you know, that way lies madness. But still making sure that there's, there's spaces, social spaces, cultural spaces, where that still exists. I think that's, you know, that's absolutely a left-wing argument for me because that's preserving minority culture against the face of, in, in the face of uh, 
imperialism. Are things really that bad that people just want to escape so so much that they just can't see what's in their doorstep anymore? I wonder, you know, I wonder if it's just that the the free market, you know, capitalism has got so much power now that it's very difficult to know at this stage what are natural human desires, uh, what are um, our normal cultural tastes, what our default cultural tastes would be when we're surrounded by entertainment conglomerates that control every single aspect of what we consume. So... You, I could go to every single person in this bar, pretty much, and ask them what they think of the Marvel films, and they'll have an opinion. They might not have seen all of them. They might have seen none of them. But they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot of Marvel movies happening, isn't there? I could go around every single person in this bar and say, what do you think of Sorry McLean? And they'll say, who? Of course they will. Because the, the channels are only open, culturally or economically, for Sorry McLean to, to reach somebody's consciousness now. So, yeah, absolutely, it's that, that kind of stuff. You don't want to get, you don't want to just get into the business of uh, cultural protectionism or, or um, you know, folklore preservation. As an artist, if that's all you do, you know, you, you're probably limiting yourself a bit. But that should be some of what you do, I think. You know what I mean? I do think a lot of Scottish artists have got, have got a duty, almost, to preserve parts of their culture and their art. Well, you can't, you can't lay down in other arts what their duty is, you know, because then you do start... I come from a culture, though, that is slowly losing itself into this big sort of globalised conglomerate, then surely an artist has some responsibility to where they've come from. Well, you get any whole big questions about whether or not an artist has responsibility. Who does an artist have responsibility to? There are a lot of artists who say, I only have responsibility to myself and my own art. I don't, I don't feel like that. But I have to recognise that some artists do. But for me, those artists often go down uh, roads that I personally find a little bit too uh, self-indulgent. And uh, those are the artists that are, it's probably easier to co-opt uh, into the market. Um, the, the artists that do feel that they have some sort of social responsibility, um, that doesn't mean to say they're automatically good. Of course it doesn't, right? You know, a lot of that stuff can be shit as well. But it at least signals to me an artist that's prepared to uh, make a stand that's bigger than just themselves as an individual. You know what I mean? I think we, we get into a cult of individualism sometimes where you think the individual's rights and freedoms absolutely trump everybody else's in every single situation. And it's no accident because that's, that's essentially the cult of capitalism. It's about greed, it's about selfishness. Um, it's about your particular drive for power or wealth uh, at the expense of somebody else's. That's what it, that's what it is. Um, so I think sometimes as an artist you can send out the signal saying, no, actually, you know, it's not just about me. We we have to preserve something in the work that we do from people whose contributions haven't gone recognised and whose memory might fade and who still count.
one, so just to go, kind of go back a little bit, kind of go f- full circle almost, I guess we could say, you've, you haven't had a novel thing since 2011 and you've been working in place since then. Yeah. Now, we've just kind of briefly spoken about how, I guess, drama has become more relevant in the wake of seeing something political. Is that, is that at all relevant to what you've been doing? Is that at all kind of a good explanation of why you've been doing the play thing for a while? Well, I think there are practical things as well about plays being able to write themselves quicker. Um, and, you know, having a, as I suppose, really juggle the economic reality of writing maybe three plays in a year against writing one novel every four years. You know, I, I, I do this full time. Yeah, you've got to eat, you know, and books don't pay, you know, they, they don't. Uh, but nonetheless, books do matter. I still care about books, I still care about reading them, I still care about writing them. Uh, I, I just need to wait until the idea is so irresistible to me and so um, necessary for me to express it that I'm prepared to devote that amount of my time to doing it. Um, and because I think a lot of novels get sort of stimulated into overproduction, you know, book a year, book a year, book a year, book a year, because they're, they're terrified about their livelihood being taken away from them. But I, I just couldn't work like that. So... Um, Theatre was partly expedient, but also I do think there is an energy in Scottish theatre that maybe I wasn't quite feeling in Scottish uh, literature. It's hard to say, it's, uh, you know, because you would have to say, well, which artists are you talking about? Uh, and everybody's interpretation of what's happening within any given field is always completely different, based on your own biases and prejudices, and, and sometimes based on your own friendships. Um, but for me, theatre feels like the one that's going at it. Because it's, I think it's harder, uh, because theatre has to be done live. You know, it, it doesn't necessarily have a, a big uh, publisher or a bit of a film studio above it, you know, that, that has to link it into a, a marketplace. Uh, there's still a, an ecology of theatre where you can just get stuff on a stage and, you know, 500 people see it and boom, you move on to the next project. And that can sustain itself. So that, that to me lends itself to making quick statements to what's reacting politically in the culture at the time. Novels are long and slow and ponderous and, you know, the, you can't react in the novel form quickly to political events. You just can't. It's, it's almost like reaching out and punching somebody in the face. You can do that in theatre with your message. You can just do that. Whereas, like you say, a novel takes so long to, to get to someone's eyes. <laughs> yeah, and the reason the novel takes so long is why it's more, it's more powerful. Because it... it seeps into your brain to a, a greater extent. I've probably been changed more by reading novels than I have by watching plays because the mental experience of consuming a, a novel is just greater. It demands more effort of you. It demands more concentration uh, and more stamina. But I do like that idea that plays are like um, um, sharks bursting out of the water and grabbing you. That's what a play feels like. One thing I did want to discuss, uh, kind of a tangent, I guess, but it's a question I've been dying to ask since we sat down, is Death of a Ladies Man. Um, it, I liked it a lot because of the total deconstruction of the alpha male macho bullshit culture yeah. which exists yeah, that yeah. I can't stand. Uh-huh. It's also powerfully feminist in a way. Was that... How, how was that to write? Uh, well, I mean, there are probably feminists out there who don't think it's powerfully feminist. It's probably easier for both of us as men to say, yeah, yeah, that's a feminist book and, you know, it's not up to us to decide. But that said, uh, I was at a certain stage in my life where I, I realised that 
what I hadn't done, I hadn't done was a, a sort of full scale demolition of masculinity or what it means to be a man, you know, like because if you're male, that well, you grow up surrounded by it, and you never really think about your cultural conditioning, you never think about your own privilege, you never think about any of these things because it's just reality, and so it felt like doing the job properly, and I realised as I was writing that that I couldn't reward them at the end of the book, you know, because what statement does that send out? Uh, so inevitably, I started to, I, I had to try and see. Uh, men and a man like that specifically an alpha male for the perspective of women um, and I think that's what that's what that was about it was just it, was, it wasn't like I am making a feminist point here it was more just like let's do the jo- if, you, if you're going to be a man and I've not got much choice in the matter let's do the job properly and let's fucking explore the whole construct of it because who does that? I was just because like, I was thinking of reading it and a lot of the things that I do in my life is about kind of about this idea of having to explore what masculinity actually means in society where it's at, there's two there's two completely different identities almost more than two that's bullshit there's more than two there's more than one identity for male but there's but there's definitely a prevalent one do you think that more writers should should be doing that do you think that's important as a male to explore that because I don't think many guys do I just think they like you say the cultural conditioning they've got that I'm brought up like this and that's just the way it is and I am a man like this and Shit happens. Yeah, well, I mean, every writer's different, obviously. I mean, there are some male writers who do that, um, who sort of subvert the whole idea of masculinity. You know, Ewan Morrison's probably one of them. Uh, I think in some of those books, that's what he's doing. Uh, I think um, he's doing that in Swung. I think he's doing that in Menage. Um, but it takes a, a great degree of self-consciousness and self-analysis and self-criticism and a lot of people aren't up for that. So that's where you get the other end of the spectrum, where you you know you get your Hemingways and you get your um, oh, what's his face, the the, the naked and the dead. Um, no idea, man. Uh, but, but great American novelist. Uh, no, 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 further back. What's his fucking name? No, no, this is that. This is the start of early onset Alzheimer's. <laughs> I'm keeping this Norman in, by the way. Mailer. Norman Mailer. <laughs> fucking Norman Mailer, aye. Um, you know, you get the, the overinflated male ego. And sometimes in the novel, that manifests itself as this quest, you know, like this, like something like Moby Dick, to harpoon the great American novel, or the novel that defines a generation, or the novel that is uh, so colossal in its scope that, you know, you must bow down before it. Uh, that's a very male pursuit. Uh, you can see that, that and, and also in male critics to anoint that kind of novel uh, and get in on it it's all very alpha male which is not to say don't be ambitious but I think there's there's something about the cult of that that kind of infects male writers and then they start to feel inadequate if they haven't written fucking you know bleak house yeah. I think the whole alpha male thing as well is quite, it can be quite destructive to, to one's personality life and career if if that's your single goal in life to to, like to say we define it like this you know what I mean well I think there probably is something there if you look at the relationship of mental health to a lot of those writers that pushed incredible boundaries uh, it's a it's a very fine line but at, at what point does it become a kind of uh, I don't know a, a, a fool's errand because even if you've written Ulysses you, you still think well I haven't written Finnegan's Wake you know, and for me, Finnegan's Wake is the ultimate failure of the novel. I mean, Ulysses is the ultimate triumph. 
and he retreats into this solipsistic, tiny, closed universe that can only be understood if you're prepared to devote thousands and thousands of hours and discussions with other academics into solving this novel. I mean, that's that's where it departs for reality. And I think, well, okay, put it this way. I've encountered a lot of young male writers who think they're about to inherit world literature as theirs. And you know what? I thought like that when I was young. I was like, geezer. You know, I had all the ambition, I had all the cockiness in the world. And maybe you need some of that to power you through. Uh, but I've also noticed a lot of female writers who just don't think like that. They don't think they're about to inherit world literature. They are only out to harpoon the, the great white whale. They just want somebody to pay attention to what they've got to say. And they're often better writers, but they, are, uh, they don't have quite that same determination and drive and power to establish themselves in the world. And I think that is a gendered thing. Another thing that I found interesting and fun about Death of Ladies Man is, is the deconstruction of male identity generally. And uh, as I kind of said at the start of the podcast, exploration of identity is quite a Scottish thing. Um, and I'm sure you're aware of P. McDermott's Caledonian Anesthesiology, the whole idea. Yeah. Uh, which seems to me, I'm tying two things together here, was also something that became quite apparent, the Scottish identity of late, uh-huh. um, and particularly with the, the referendum, which, you know, we fucked, we totally fucked it, man. <laughs> well, that's my feeling, aye, but obviously that's not the feeling of a lot of people in the country. Uh, well, I mean, the thing about the referendum is that we're still making sense of it. We're still trying to untangle the the economic arguments. Uh, obviously, things are still in process with what's happening with the, the SNP uh, delegation getting sent into Westminster in such numbers, uh, the Tories having a majority, the collapse of Labour, the rise of Corbyn, uh, the Scottish elections coming next year, the, the, the vague discussion about another independence referendum. I mean, it's interesting that even John McTernan is now saying Kezia Dugdale's priority has to be tackling a, an independence referendum now. You know what I mean? And you're like, OK, so it's, it's not going away. Everything's still in flux. Scotland, what the referendum was for me was Scotland trying to find out what it was. Because while you've got this whole other culture sitting on top of you, while you're in the, an economic straitjacket, um, which is what, to me, the union is for Scotland... You don't know what you are. You don't know what your culture would uh, sort of spring towards if it was independent. You don't know how benign it could be. You don't know how malign it could be. You you just don't know. Um, And for me, there was a real grinding of the gears of two very different Scotlands that it's been, that it is, and that it could be. Those two things were really sort of like, like tectonic plates bashing against each other, and we're still in the earthquake. If we go back just ever so slightly to the whole idea of cultural protectionism, do you think that could have been if if well, I'm going to say when when we become an independent nation because I think it's I think it's going to happen in our lifetime. Do you think that there will be a shift in in terms of maybe defining what Scottish identity is against what it used to be or what it could be, like you just said? Um, well, I mean, the thing about identity is that you can never define it. Because as soon as it's fixed, it becomes something else. We always seek to define identity, though, like nationally. I mean, I, th- I think everybody at their own individual level has their own definition of what Scotland is. And the aggregate definitions of all those individuals is the aggregate identity. 
because there's a lot of people for whom like the Edinburgh military tattoo is an embarrassment. I don't particularly like it. It's militaristic. You know, it's about Scotland's part in the empire. But other people fucking love it. And for them, that completely encapsulates Scotland. And, you know, I kind of tell them they're wrong because they've got as much right to that Scotland as I have to mine. So I think it's just a matter of these things organically emerge. As soon as you start trying to direct them too heavily, then you start to get into the sort of territory that people were worried about when they said, why are you trying to protect the folk culture or Gaelic or Scots? You know, I think we should do that. But no to the extent that it becomes um, almost like a, a, a cultural boorishness, you know, or, or a chauvinism. We will always have to guard against that. Can I just ask, it's occurred to me, can I just ask, is a political novel coming in you? Uh, yeah, but it might not be the sort of political novel that everybody's expecting. There is a novel that's getting larger in my head, which is going to be partly historical and partly set in the present day. And uh, that's a big departure for me. So I need to get it right. Um, yeah, that's all I'm saying about that one. I've noticed that when I do interviews now, uh, they're never fun, because everybody asks me political questions. How can I make this fun for you, Alan? How can I... Well, we could talk about... What we could, should we talk about? We could talk about Marvel. I love Marvel. I, I got from... I kind of got a sense you hated it there, from what you were saying. Well, no, I hate the fact that it's such a dominant thing in cinema. But at the same time, I go and see these films. I mean, I lock them up because, well, the Marvel Corporation got to me early when I was young because I was reading Spider-Man comics and Hulk and all that. So that's still in there. And you can you can see them doing it with Star Wars. You can see them doing it with Frozen. These are the things franchises are going to be able to ex- uh, extend into infinite time because they keep getting kids when they're young. So, yeah, there's that aspect, which I don't like, but... I do like the way that these movies are unfolding and the way that it's one big integrated universe. And actually some of them are well made. Some of them are. I mean, the writing's good. You know, the performances are good. It's a long way since, you know, the sort of blockbusters that I remember when I was young, which, I've got to be honest, I think were better. You know, I think the the blockbuster hasn't evolved in the right direction. I think they've become, I think, this is going to sound bizarre, but I think blockbusters have somehow become even more disposable now. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, because they're so reliant on CGI technology that inevitably dates. And you look at a lot of the, you know, like those early Hulk movies, you know, the, the Hulk looks crap. You, you don't buy into it at all because the latest Hulk technology is getting an ever more realistic Hulk. And then you compare it to like, my favourite film, right, which is Jaws, which, yes, is a big summer blockbuster movie. In fact, invented the blockbuster movie. But... It feels so handmade now. Like, the actors have got these weather-beaten, non-Hollywood faces. You can tell that, you know, like, the thing was a bastard to shoot because, you know, the the, the amount of detail and the amount of uh, accuracy and and the way that that film was put together. Um, And I just think even the shark, the fact that it's an actual shark in front of them that they're acting towards, is much better than a CGI shark, which might look more realistic but we don't buy into quite as much, if you know what I mean. And that really prioritised... If you look at those big blockbusters for the 70s, you know, The Godfather, Jaws, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Exorcist, you know, massive, massive selling films. They would be pitched now as sort of, you know, mid-range, kind of medium-budget art house movies, almost. 
you know, imagine Jaws being pitched now with that amount of special effects in it and that amount of character detail. Hardly any special effects, really. An immense dramatic heft. That would now be pitched as a sort of indie uh, B-movie. I agree. <laughs> I was going to try and say something intelligent, but no, I totally agree with that. Although, one of the things that I do worry about with, I guess, to, about the Marvel movies, which kind of occurred to me is like, hitting a point of dimension returns. You know what I mean? Like, there's going to come a point very soon where it's going to be like, oh, well, in fact, for me, I'm going to, I'm going to, just, going to I'm just going to say it. It's the same ending. It's the same, it's the same plot. It's the same storyline in every single film now. I think you've got to that stage. I do agree with what you're saying about older blockbusters being, feeling more handmade. Um, they don't certain things don't stand the test of time in them, but I think ultimately the narrative and like the construction of of that is a moment in time which can never ever be replicated. Marvel, you mean? Well, like films like Jaws or Close oh, Encounters. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know that that particular moment in time in American cinema in the seventies. You know there was real change in the air. You know, starting with Easy Rider uh, in the late sixties, which just shook the whole thing up. But always at every stage like you know the the artistry of putting a film together the cinematography was considered as important as the script and as the as the acting it wasn't necessarily always about the uh the marketability so a film like apocalypse now you know it's an insane huge movie they shot it in the jungle you know i think at that point it was the most expensive film ever made you know that would all be done in cgi now you know that that sort of film with that that amount of handmade quality, maybe only Christopher Nolan is the one who's making films on that scale that still look like they have some sort of connection to the real world. But every other blockbuster, it's just it's like watching a cartoon. And I think you know Marvel are good at. Um, I think they've anticipated the comic book movie fatigue, and so you watch something like Ant Man. It's a bit quirkier, you know. I I liked it. Because what they know that people are going to start going, oh, no, another fucking Marvel movie. And so they're trying to make everyone feel like it's in a different genre. So Captain America 2 is this sort of, you know, 70s conspiracy spy thriller. Uh, Ant-Man is like a sort of comedy siege movie. Uh, Doctor Strange apparently is going to be trippy as fuck. Loads of, you know, almost like it's a sort of Tim Burton-esque kind of thing. So they are re- retaining a certain distinctive thing. But... You can never get past the fact that the plots are fairly cookie-cutter. You know, there's, there's always going to be our third-act apocalyptic event where something's getting dropped through the sky or, you know, a hole has been torn in space and things are flying through it. You know, and there's always a race against time and, you know, somebody's always hanging by their fingertips of a building. You know, that kind of stuff's just bullshit. It's just empty calories. I think people are in it for the, the stuff in between, the character stuff. The dialogue—that's that's actually what we're in it for. That's interesting because, like, uh, they gave—I think Marvel in a lot of a lot of ways have been have given the fans the keys to the castle in terms of Josh Whedon and James Gunn and the Russo brothers, who actually are fans of, or who actually comic book. Well, in Josh Whedon's case, I was a comic book writer, you know, yeah. so so they can do the, the the narrative legwork as well in a comic book way, but with a lot more sophistication. But also provide the spectacle, which kind of that three hundred million dollar budget <laughs> requires. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the hard part. I think is how do you retain a particular artist's flavour or vision within this massive studio blockbuster? And you can see all sorts of tensions there. In fact, you know the latest one, the Fantastic Four one, which I know isn't a technical Marvel studio movie, 
but like Fox have totally arsed it up um, because they, they essentially got it all wrong. They, they are only Marvel. They don't know what they're doing with these properties to the same extent. Um, and I think that is probably a sign that Marvel are doing things right. When you see other studios try to do these films and getting it wrong, you know it does make you realise that Marvel know what they're doing. So I would still rather that, but it does feel like Marvel's now... In fact, right, let's, let's extrapolate outwards. Marvel, Pixar, Star Wars are all owned by fucking Disney. So, like, Disney... It feels like Disney are controlling 80% of what people are watching at the cinema. And that's, that's terrifying. Disney used to feel, to me, like this benign company that produced kids' movies every year or two. And you either bought into those movies or you didn't. Now it feels like they're running Hollywood. And it's like, ah, you know, there's part of you hates yourself for continually getting back to these movies. You know, but there's part of you hates yourself every time you drink a can of Coke. It's been implanted in you that you want that Coke. I was going to say something about Daredevil, but now that you've brought up Pixar, I just want to say, I don't care if they control the world, I can watch their films all fucking day. <laughs> I seen Inside Out last week. A couple of weeks ago, and it's it's just fantastic. Like Pixar do stuff that no other animation company can do now. Not even Disney can do it. You know, um, I don't know if you've seen Inside Out, the, the latest one. Yeah, it's, it's pretty great, isn't it? Yeah, I liked it. I think these are good kids' movies. Um, and and well, for a kids' movie, yeah, definitely. Uh, so I applaud it in that respect. Uh, but the thing about Pixar and Harry Potter and Star Wars and Marvel to a certain extent and I'm not throwing any stones because I'm guilty of this myself it's like, why are adults watching this? You know, really I mean, of all the things that we could be watching our brains now are developed enough and are complex enough that we can handle stuff that's more challenging but we don't and we opt for that and sometimes that lets me and you know, we all work hard I get that temptation, like, let's go to the cinema, I don't want to watch it in heavy, I don't want to watch something about, you know, set in the French resistance in the Second World War, and it's in a across-the-barricades love story, and, you know, one of them gets their, their head blown off. You know, I want to watch a film where superheroes are battering fuck out of supervillains. You know what I mean? And it, it looks amazing. Because, you know, people have got a lot of shit happening in their life, and they often see entertainment as an escape. But... I don't know, I, I think there are there are other forms of entertainment that are just, and this makes me sound like a hideous snob, that are just more nourishing, that are just a better workout for your mind than a lot of the shit that we sign up to. I think society keeps, especially our generation and the generation before the Generation X and stuff like that, society aims to keep us in a state of permanent adolescence, which yeah, is exactly. why we keep going to see these films. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and also I think because, I mean, there is something... If you look at the generation like mine that came up off the back of Star Wars, you know, I can remember Star Wars toys and Star Wars merchandise long before I ever saw the film because it was being marketed at me. Even when I was three, it was being marketed at me. And that was a shift. That hadn't really happened with movies quite so much. I mean, it was there a wee bit, you know, Planet of the Apes and Jaws and all that, you know, marketing existed. But Star Wars took it to a whole other scale. And so what film studios and toy companies and comics, uh, comic book publishers started to realise was, well, let's consolidate here, and once we've got a brand that people have bought into, we can sell a fuck-ton of merchandise related to it because we've got them when they're young, we've got them when their emotional memories are attached to it, and they'll want that 
when they're older and they want to give it to their children and they want to give it to their children you know so it becomes like I mean I've got three nephews I communicate with them by talking to them about Star Wars and Marvel because I know about it I mean it's not that easy for an uncle to communicate with a nephew otherwise because I don't know what's happening in their life day by day but I can say let's go and see Ant-Man and then we go out for a pizza and we like talk that shit out and that's you know that's how they love me so I'm like, oh, this whole thing's been fucking puppeteered by Disney. You know what I mean? They've got me. They've got us all now. Fuck. Yeah, what are we going to do? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I'll wrap it up now, I guess. Um, thanks for talking to me. Uh, is there anything you want to add or anything you want to ask me before we finish? Yes, yes, actually I do. Um, I would like to know what's happening in Scottish literature. So da. In your, in your interpretation. Can you be a bit more specific? Okay, who are the writers that you're excited by of the current generation of Scottish writers? James Robertson, can I say James Robertson? Of course you can. Yeah, James Robertson for sure. Um, He's he's a genius. He's gone somewhere else. Yeah. We're we're all still trying to follow in James Robertson's wake at the moment. It feels like he's just taken the whole idea of a Scottish writer so seriously, in a good way, that he's uh, he's mining areas that the rest of us can only follow him down. He's, he's, he's creating he's, he's creating his own renaissance almost like he's just he's he's way ahead he's way ahead so that'd probably the that's the only thing I, the only person I could really say that ultimately stands out to me right now that in terms of I like Louise Welsh she's yeah. good Gussie Logan's good as well um, but for me James Robertson is like that's who I'm wanting to touch you know, does that so make sense because he's writing ambitious books I think it's because he's he's got a vision which is beyond more than just... It's, it, he's got a vision which is both communal and world-facing. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah, and I think that novel that he wrote, Joseph Knight, was a really important one in terms of Scotland's relationship with itself. Um, and also he's got just an incredible grasp of history and an understanding of Scotland. Um, so, yeah, yeah, definitely James Robertson. Like that's, what, about, uh, what about younger writers, like writers that are younger than me that I, I might not even know? The only writers I've been reading are people that I've been in classes with, so they don't really have anything out, I guess. Um, fuck. None of the names are, are coming to me. Uh, Zoe Wilson's good. Uh, I like Laura I like Laura Marnie as well. Um, I don't know if they're younger than us, but... <laughs> uh, Laura Marnie's not younger than yeah. me, uh, but we did come through together, so we feel kind of of the same generation. There was a whole wee group of us that came through roughly about the same time uh, me, Louise Welsh, Zoe Strachan, uh, Ewan Morrison, Rog Glass, Nick Brooks, Colette Paul. Uh, we were in about that sort of mid noughties period in Glasgow. We were all kind of in touch with each other. Um, and then what happens is the further into career you get, you, you sort of splinter and fragment and you go off on your own path. Uh, but it does feel like that was, that, that was the sort of generation that I would have, say I felt part of. Some poets I can, I can, I guess I can talk about. William Letford is just a genius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell, let me tell you something about uh, Billy Letford. I saw him right at the start. Uh, we were doing a thing in Glasgow at the time called Discombobulate. Me, Maggie Gibson, who was my mentor when I was young, uh, and Ian McPherson. And it was on in the CCA uh, in Soggy Old Street. And uh, it was a sort of performance literature night. And there weren't that many of those around about that time. Now the whole scene's exploded, especially in Edinburgh. But, you know, that, that was one of the few things that was happening at the time. 
and so we were you know, thirsty to get new performers and we got a, a tip off from Sterling Writers Group that I'd been in and Maggie had taught you know the guy that teaches it now was like you've got this guy at Sterling Writers Group Billy Wetford you know what I mean get him on and uh, we gave him a stage and that was his first kind of entry to, to Glasgow really and folk were like holy shit you know it was like it felt a bit like when people say the first time they saw the Sex Pistols and as somebody who's pretty good at performing on stage you know we recognise our own I was like this guy's fucking brilliant it was better than me do you know what I mean? That's how I knew. It was better than me. And I was like, yeah, man, go for it. And he was working class. He was a roofer and he was writing poetry that, you know, had a, a whole unique take on the world. And I was just like, aye, man, right, you've, you, you're finding something. You're, you're, you're on your way. Another poet that I think is, is up and coming, uh, Richie McCaffrey, I don't know if you've heard of him. Nope. Uh, he, he was doing his PhD at Glasgow Uni in my first or second year. Um, and he's a, he is a very good poet I think he's got some stuff published now uh, he's, he's cracking uh, and as a, another good writer I don't know if she's got any books out yet but I've I read her in uni as well she's called Sophie Sexton Sophie Sexton no, no I don't think I do know that name what is she writing? I guess it's just literary fiction like I guess I can't really <laughs> I can't really put anything this is, that. this is what happens right see when you're coming up and I started take my writing really seriously and sort of trying to get on the scene such as it exists uh, when I was about 21 21, 22 Boy Racers was published when I was 25 so at that point you know you've, you've arrived right um, but I was I was considered exceptionally young you know I kind of felt like the, the cheeky chappy sort of cutting about you know like there wasn't that Zoe was my age Sophie Cook was my age but there wasn't many of us and, you know, so you have to hang around for a while and, and prove yourself long-term before people start taking you seriously. And by the time you do that, you turn around and there's a whole generation coming up behind you and you've no idea who they are. Whereas at the point you were coming, you knew who everybody was. And that's how it goes. It's a circle of life. I would like to say that we should definitely all be re- refocusing on and reappreciating James Hogg continually, forever and ever and ever. Aye, man. Like, the confessions of a justified son, you can't see past it. You know, you, you read it, because, like, I was probably the same as you, you know, you studied Scottish literature, I studied English literature, and whenever you were given a novel from a previous century, you're like, your heart sank a wee bit, because you're like, this is going to be hard work. Um, and sometimes that hard work was rewarded, and sometimes it wasn't. It? But James Hogg, man, fuck, you're like, this feels so modern. I was doing all sorts of, like, uh, devices with uh, the narrative point of view, and uh, with the, the author turning up in the book and psychology, well, psychology you know, like the whole thing, if you've seen things from different um, perspectives, uh, what is authorial truth, you know, ask all those kind of questions. And it's a really great story about this maniac serial killer, you know, with the devil in it. It satisfies on every level. And you can see it. I mean, I just went to see Lanark, the stage version by David Gregg, um, yeah, amazing, amazing. And, I mean, obviously it can never fully capture the book because the book's enormous and, you know, the, the play is only two and a half hours or whatever. But it certainly has a good go. But that bit when Alistair Gray turns up and Duncan Thaw talks to him as his creator, you know, it's like, oh, my God, I'm in a book? What do you mean I'm in a book? You know, that kind of stuff's happening in Confessions of a Justified Sinner. You know, oh, what, what was it, 150 years before Lanark, you know? So, aye, 
can I see past it? I'd also like for us to re-adopt John Niven as a Scottish writer. Because I think he's great. John Niven was a Scottish writer. I don't think people consider him a Scottish writer. Does he not have a Scottish accent? Yeah, but his first novel, Kill Your Friends, is set, it's set in London and it's all it's all in English. And what? So he doesn't write about Scotland. I, I genuinely don't think people see him as a Scottish, a Scottish author. Like people that I've spoken to don't see him as he is a, he's from Glasgow. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't yeah. think he see him as a Scottish author. Well, until I uh, heard an interview with him, I didn't realise he was a Scottish author. Maybe because he's I don't think he's based in Scotland and he's writing about England. Fair enough. Um, but he's still a Scottish writer. I mean, there's no there's no getting away from that. Like Muriel, hardly anything Muriel Spark wrote was about Scotland. The one novel that she did write about Scotland, though, is venerated above all others. But, you know, she wasn't that interested in Scotland, really. Some some writers aren't they? That's, that's up to them. Well, I think we should probably wrap it up, because okay. you've got to be places <laughs> soon. It's, it's five past six, okay, so yeah. Alan, thanks very much for talking to me. Appreciate it. It's been nice. Fuck, I enjoyed that. We went everywhere. Yes, that's what, that's what I love to hear. Yeah, man. So there you have it. Alan Bissett. Live and in conversation. Well, yeah, it was recorded live, but you know it wasn't live. Live, you weren't hearing it live. Ah, I don't know. Anyway, it was a really great chat, really insightful. It's very clear that he's passionate about writing and about theatre, and also it would appear about Marvel films and not even just Marvel films, but the way that media is being deployed and consumed in the world at the moment. He's a very, very nice guy and we had a few drinks afterwards and I really enjoyed hanging out with him and hopefully if he's not too repulsed by my general meanness, we can do it again. So yeah, that's all for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. I'm going to play you out now with a track called Move by a gentleman called Martin Bennett. I hope you enjoy it. Check us out on iTunes. Throw me a rating or review. That would be awesome. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Bye-bye.